All right, so we're in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I'm reading out of the, uh, the English Standard Version, as usual. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents had one of those old-timey movie cameras, right? And they had little film movie, uh, you know, film, film strips, not film strips, but you know what I mean, where, home movies, there you go. And uh, so they'd put up a bed sheet and we'd watch home movies. And I remember the first time we ever did that, and the first one we watched was when my parents were just, they hadn't been married long. Dad was in Vietnam and he'd been given uh, some R&R and so mom flew to Hawaii and, she, and he met her there and they had a few days together uh, on the beach. And so this is when my brother and I saw my mom in a two-piece bathing suit. And, uh, and my brother, was, who was too young to know better, said, dang mom, you sure were skinny. And that was the last time we saw that particular home movie. Um, but then we saw some other ones. Uh, it went up until I was a little boy, you know, chubby little boy, and uh, movies of me holding cats and chasing things around the yard, and my dad holding me. And you know, it's interesting. It was interesting for me to watch that because if you would have asked me right then, "Does your dad love you?" I would have said, oh, "Absolutely." But I didn't have an affectionate relationship with him. I didn't know anybody back then that had an affectionate relationship with their dad. That was what you did with your mom. And yet watching that, I saw that how excited my dad was to have a baby boy. And the, the affection he showed me when I was little like that. And Later I found the baby book that my mom had, had filled in all the blanks with. And then my dad had written front back one page, sort of a narrative of the day I was born. And it was funny. I'd love to have it and read it to you, but I won't. Uh, but it just, again, it, it, it was weird for me. It was odd for me to read and just think, oh, that's, that's my dad. That's how he felt when I came into the world. It's amazing to realize the hopes and the dreams that your parents had for you when you were little. It's kind of humbling, really. Um, even more so to think about what Jesus had planned for us. Now, we're in this study in John, the second part of John, the second half of John, that just covers from Holy Thursday, as we might call it, until the time he uh, ascended into heaven, which is a period of about 40, 50 days. And in that time, he gives us the basics of our faith, the origin story of our faith. But in the, in the passage we're looking at right now, which is John 17, the high priestly prayer, we see, we've seen him pray for himself. Last week we saw him pray for the 12, for the 11, that is, the disciples. And tonight he's going to pray for us. Yeah, you're in the Bible in a way because Jesus is going to pray for you in these next six verses. And it's interesting to see what Jesus prays for, what his hopes are for us uh, collectively as his people. So uh, let's start with verse 20. He continues with his prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, I just want to stop there and point, some, point out something that because you grew up, most of you, in evangelical circles, either, either Baptist or some other Bible-teaching church, this won't be a surprise to you, but I think it needs to be pointed out once again. Jesus expected his disciples to spread the word. He expected them to share the gospel. He expected that this message would spread and expand. This wasn't just for them. So he's praying for us. He's praying for all the successive generations who will hear the message because of those 11 and the other Christians, about 120 of them at this point, who would take the message with them and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you, 
if you were in Jesus's shoes and you were about to start a movement that you wouldn't get to be around physically to run, uh, but you wanted it to take off. You wanted it to change the world. And here you have these 11 uh, leaders who are going to start this movement. What would you pray for for them? Would you pray for spiritual power? Would you pray for them to have great influence on people, that people would, would be influenced by them? Would you pray for th those guys to stay true to the, true to the core message? I think you'd probably pray for all of those, but note what Jesus prays for. It's not any of the things I just mentioned. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what Jesus prayed for when he was praying for us the night before he was arrested and taken to the cross was for our unity, that we would be one. And this is a major theme of the New Testament. This has happened to me several times in the years that I've been a pastor. I will preach a sermon on unity. I don't know that it's happened here, but I'll preach a sermon about unity. And afterwards, someone will come up to me and say, is something wrong? Is there something going on? Or, or, or is, is the church about to split? And I'll always say, no, 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 nothing's going on. It's, everything's fine. It's just that's in the Bible. And it's in the Bible over and over again. In fact, I haven't done, I haven't checked this to be sure. But my opinion, my notion of it is, you'll find something about the unity of God's people in every book of the New Testament. And some books of the Old. So when people, you don't necessarily hear that kind of sermon very often, because that just seems not as gospel-centered, I guess, or not as hard-hitting, or not as exciting as sermons on other things. And yet, if you're true to preaching the real Word of God, and you try to preach what's actually in the book, you can't get around preaching about the necessity of unity and the way the devil wants to split God's people up. So, uh, before we... Well, let me just say this. We just don't understand what this means. I, I remember growing up, uh, not necessarily growing up, but when I, when I was in churches as a young man before I became a pastor, uh, churches used to have this tradition. They'd always hold hands at the end and they'd sing a song about the, you know, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, or uh, there's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. And that's fine, but that's not unity. You can do that and not mean it. Uh, we, we build fellowship halls in our churches. Ours is named after Dr. Harrington. But just because you have a place that you call a fellowship hall doesn't mean you have unity in your church. Just because you go in there and you have uh, church suppers or covered dish dinners or life group parties, that doesn't mean you have unity. Uh, a lot of Christians, a lot of church members think, well, if there's no big fights going on, if there's no, if there's no big drama, if you can have a, a, a business meeting where there's no drama, and if as far as you know, nobody's trying to fire the preacher, then we're a unified church. And while I want all those things to be true, that in itself is not unity. So 
what I'm going to do before I get into the passage we just read and walk through it a little more closely is I want to just kind of do a, do a quick survey of some, of some of the things, not all, some of the things the New Testament says about the unity of God's people. I don't have uh, scripture references here. If you need one, let me know and I'll look it up. So it talks about bearing one another's burdens. In fact, that's according to Paul, that's the way you fulfill the law of Christ. I'll remind you in Acts 4, it says the early Christians would sell their own property to provide for the needs of poorer members of their church. So here's Brother, brother uh, Wilson, and he can't pay his bills, and he's about to lose, lose his house. So Sister uh, Rodriguez sells her family land or her extra car or something else that's special so she can help him pay his bills for a while. Now, that's just unheard of today, and yet they did that back then. They said, your troubles are my troubles. Today, at the very least, we ought to be able to just sit and listen while somebody weeps on our shoulder, while somebody just unburdens themselves and says, this is what I'm dealing with, without getting embarrassed, without saying, I'll pull it together, buddy, but just listen and bear their burdens with them. It helps to have somebody there who knows what you're going through. Bear one another's burdens. Something else that's said over and over again in the New Testament is be of one mind, be of the same mind. This does not mean uniformity, by the way. You and I don't have to dress the same. We don't have to have the same haircut. We don't have to like the same music. We don't even have to vote for the same people on election day. But we do need to have the same ultimate goal, the same goal for our church and for our lives. Our, our, our goal should not be to make our church what we want it to be. This is hard for us because we're, we're, we're in a culture that's very individualistic, very consumer-driven, right? I, I don't know about you, but if we go out to eat and we get something that doesn't taste good, my wife does not want to go back there. She does, she's not in favor of giving restaurants second chances. You know, if, if, they, if, it's, if it tastes nasty or if you know, she sees a, a bug run across the table, there's no second chances because there's too many other places, right? A lot of us are that way about our church. Church has to fit my standards, has to live up to my expectations because it's about me and it's about my needs. I remember a long, long time ago talking to a man and he told me, I didn't even know this man well, but he found out I was a preacher and so he told me this story. He said, you know, our church doesn't have a pastor right now and the interim pastor the other day said something that made me so angry. He said, friends, the church you grew up in is never coming back, so just accept it. And he said, I wanted to get up in the middle of the church and hit him, but I didn't. And I said, well, I'm glad you didn't. But that made him angry because in his mind, that's the dream. The dream is to get it back to what he had growing up. For others, the dream is, well, I want to have what I had in the last church I was in. Or maybe for teenagers, it's, well, I want to have what I have when I go off to youth camp. And we get all excited and we jump around. And then we come back to church and we're singing these boring old songs. I want it to be like that. We all have these expectations and they're not necessarily bad expectations, but that cannot be our goal. If that's our goal, there's no way we're going to be unified because no two people are going to agree. You know the saying, right? Where you have two, two Baptists, you've got three opinions. So there's no way we can have unity and glorify God. Uh, we have to be of one mind. In other words, okay, you and I are not the same on a lot of things, but we all want Christ glorified. We all want people saved. We all want to grow in the knowledge of Him. Then you also see 
an emphasis on not showing favoritism. James is big on this. Uh, there are other passages in Scripture that show we, we need to treat people the same no matter where they come from, no matter what color they are, no matter how much money they have. James talks about it over and over again. Don't, don't get that wealthy person and give him the, the prime seed and, and put that poor person in the back. You treat everybody the way Christ would treat them. It, you know, we as human beings have a really tough time with that. Even those of us who think of ourselves as being very fair-minded, if there's an event going on at the church, what's the first question we want to ask? Well, well who else is going to be there? I want to, know, I want to make sure the people that I like are, are there. I don't want to be the only one. Well, ultimately, we need, to, we need to go because we love the Lord and we love His church. Jesus spoke these words knowing that Right now, as he's, as he's praying for these people, they all have a lot in common. They're all Jewish men from Galilee. But someday soon, it won't just be men, it won't just be Jews, and it certainly won't just be Galileans. It's going to be people from all over the world, from all walks of life. Do you know that in the book of Acts, it says that a whole bunch of Pharisees got saved, not just Paul? Don't you think that was interesting when these Pharisees came into the churches? And then they met people who were Samaritans and people who had been tax collectors and other kinds of, of sinners. It, it had to be an, an incredible mix. Jesus knows we can't treat people differently. We have to treat them the same. Another part of unity is using the gifts God gave you and appreciating the gifts of others. This is where Paul, several times in his letters, gives us the image of the body. And this is such a beautiful illustration because everybody can relate to it. If you sit down and think about it, think about how absurd it would be if your mouth decided, I'm the most important part. Because without me, the body can't get food. Without me, the body can't communicate. I'm the most important part. It kind of sounds like saying the preacher is the most important part, right? Because he's the one that talks. But without the hands... Mouth can't get food into it. The, the mouth can't do a whole lot of things. Have you ever seen somebody carry a, a briefcase in their mouth? That, that would be tough. Or anything else for that matter. The mouth needs the hands. The hands need the mouth. It's a beautiful illustration. And so unity means I do my part. I fulfill my role. I don't complain about it. I just do it. And when I see someone else who's doing something completely different... I appreciate what they do. I, I'll, I'll give you an example in our church. And I don't think he'll mind me using this example. Y'all know what I do. Y'all know the way God has called and gifted me. It's so funny, though, when people come up to me every once in a while and say, boy, I sure am. I, you're, you're doing a great job, Jeff. It's the first time in a long time that our church has been debt free and we've got, we're, we're bringing in more money than we're spending. And I always say, well, thank you, but I don't deserve any credit for that. I mean, I, I couldn't manage my way out of a wet paper bag. That's not my gift. You wouldn't hire me to run a 7-Eleven. But now, Alan Armstrong, on the other hand, if y'all ever came to finance meetings, you would see that's the guy that's carrying the water and the other people around that table who are keeping an eye on things. I'm there, but I'm playing catch up the whole time. I promise you. Now... If I ever get to the point where I say, yes, but I preach the word every Sunday and Wednesday, well, God's going to judge me for that, and uh, it's not going to be pretty because we're both needed. And the things that God has gifted you to do, even if they never receive any 
glory, even if they never get on a screen, even if there's no title attached to them, are equally important. In a unified church, that is the way people think. They come to church realizing, I've got a role to play, I know what it is, I'm going to do it to all my glory, and I'm going to celebrate when I see someone else doing their job well. Then, here's the big one, speaking the truth in love. In a unified church, you don't just say positive, affirming things. Sometimes you say things that hurt. Better are the, the, the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy, as the proverb says. I would rather be wounded by a true friend. Doesn't feel good when a friend says something to you that hurts, but if they say it in love, if they say the truth in love, it is what you need. I will say this. There's no excuse for pastors who stumble and ruin their ministry. But my guess is most of the time, if they'd had just one person who was courageous enough to be honest with them, it probably wouldn't happen. I'm not giving them any excuses, but I think oftentimes we, we say, oh, well, I don't have the right to say this to the pastor. When somebody, just one person, needs to come up and say, you're out of line. And that rarely happens. But it's also true, not just of pastors, it's also true of believers who gossip, believers who complain, believers who have anger issues. I'll give you a story. Uh, when I was a, a young pastor, there was a, a man in our church about my age, and he and his wife and me and my wife got to be friends, and I really, really liked him. Good guy, ordained him as a deacon. Um, really good guy, really loved him. He had, a, he had a temper issue. Now, I'd been with him on a couple of occasions where he just kind of flew off the handle. There was something that was pretty minor, and it was embarrassing to me. It made me uncomfortable. I never once said a thing to him about it, never once. Now, the good news is, several years later, after I'd moved on, I, I got in touch with him and found out that he, he said to me, you know, Jeff, we, my wife and I had changed churches a while after you left, and, and I heard the gospel one day and realized I don't think I was really saved. And now I know the Lord. And I was excited to know that, he had, that his life had been changed. That the Holy Spirit had just done a, a work on his life. But I thought, I wonder if that would have happened earlier if I'd had the guts to say, hey, you've got a temper problem and had confronted him with his sin. We need to have that strength. In a unified church, the truth is spoken in love. And then the last thing before we get, in, get back into the passage in John, don't forsake the assembly but encourage one another. That comes from uh, Hebrews 10. Uh, we can't be unified if we treat the gathering of believers as optional, if it's something that we do only when it's convenient. I mean, just imagine if you live in the same town with your mother, and it's her birthday, and the whole family's getting together, and you just don't show up. How does that feel? How does that look? How does that make her feel? How does that make the family feel? If you don't have a real excuse, you're not sick, you're not out of town, you just didn't want to go. How can we say that our church is unified if we don't esteem the gathering of believers? I'm preaching to the choir. You're here on a Wednesday night. If there were gold stars to give out, I'd give them out. But you know what I'm talking about. These are all the things that it means to be unified, those and much more. So, what does Jesus pray? What does Jesus tell us in this short prayer from John 17 about Christian unity? Number one, he tells us it's dependent on knowing the triune God. 
You could, you could take this whole prayer and look at it a completely different way. Instead of talking about the unity of the church, you could just read it in terms of what does it tell us about the Trinity, about how God loved, God the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world, and how the, the love between them makes them one. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It, it blows your mind. But what Jesus says in verse 21 is, I'm praying that they would be one with one another and that they also may be in us. So what that says to me is, the kind of unity we're talking about is different than what happens when different religions get together and just have interfaith dialogue. I've been a part of that, and that's a good thing too. I, at my last church, I was part of a ministerial alliance in Southwest Houston, and, and part of that ministerial alliance was a Jewish synagogue. And the rabbi who came was a great guy. I enjoyed getting to know him. I, was, I valued that time. But that's not the same thing as brothers and sisters in Christ coming together. There's something different about that. There's something different about that. It's also different than what you see on a, on a ball team or in a workplace or even in a unit of soldiers. There's a bond in each of those cases, really a strong bond in the good cases, but it's different than what we see within the body of believers, that they may be in us. Being in Christ means learning to love like He and the Father and the Spirit love each other. That's something you can't do just by serving together in the military or being on a ball team or having a few things in common. This is something unique. It can only happen. This kind of unity can only happen within Christ. Number two, he says, it's not a side issue. It is essential for mission. He says twice in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. In verse 23, he says, so that the world may know that you sent me. This is how we prove to the world that Jesus is Lord. It's not the only way, but it is a key way. Actually, if you go back to the second century, there was a, a, a Christian, uh, one of the fathers of the church, as they call him back then, named Tertullian. Uh, Tertullian was a very intelligent man, and he was one of these guys who very successfully debated with pagans. In one of his writings, he talks about how the pagans at the time would get so angry at Christians, how their beliefs just don't make any sense, but they'd say, look how much they love each other. They didn't have an explanation for that. We think their beliefs are nuts. They're just bonkers. But we Zeus worshipers, we don't love each other like they love each other. So what do we do with that? It was proof that there was something about the Christian faith that wasn't replicated in paganism. Do unbelievers say that today? Do unbelievers look at Christians and say, well, I still don't understand their beliefs, but man, I wish we loved each other like they love each other. I don't think they say that often enough, and they should. Perhaps that's one reason why the gospel isn't spreading the way it once did. Something else Jesus infers from his prayer is that our unity flows out of our salvation. Our unity is something that is an effect of being saved. We think of what does it mean to be saved? Well, it means that you're born again. It means that you have a new nature. It means that you go to heaven when you die. It also means that you become one with other believers. And verse 22 is where I get this from. He says, the glory you have given me, he's talking to the Father, the glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. What is he talking about, about giving the glory God gave to the Son, the Son is going to give to us? What does that even mean? 
There's an interesting parallel passage. I don't know if this matches up, but I think it does because they both use the word glory. In Hebrews 2, 9 through 10, it's in your notes. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So far, that's understandable. Jesus tasted death on our behalf. He was crowned with glory by the Father. Verse, nine, verse 10 says, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He brought many sons, many children, to glory. What does that mean? It means our salvation is what Jesus is referring in verse 22. Our salvation is the glory that God gave to Jesus that He has given to us. We now bear that glory because we're saved. Jesus, in other words, didn't just die to rescue you from sin and death and hell. He died to make you part of a family. That's something that's not emphasized often enough. Growing up, all I heard was, make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. Ask Jesus to be your, to, into your heart. Uh, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And I heard all these things about what it did for me individually. I just didn't hear how important it was that I was saved to be part of a family. That wasn't emphasized enough. That's one of those blind spots we all have in our discipleship. But once you know that, it changes the way you read Scripture. You, you notice things like how Jesus says that if you're going to the temple to offer a sacrifice and you realize a brother has something against you, what, what are you supposed to do? You leave that sacrifice behind and you go make things right with your brother and then you offer the sacrifice. Or if you're praying and you realize you haven't forgiven your brother, you forgive them first. Our relationships matter to God because our unity is supposed to be part of our salvation. I'll, I'll put it another way. Remember, we studied this several weeks ago, John 15. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear fruit. What is fruit? It's all those qualities like love and joy and peace and patience. But if you're doing those things, you're going to love your brother. If you're growing in Christ, if you're yoked to the vine, if you're, if you're attached to the vine, you're abiding in Christ, then you're going to love the people of God. If you don't love the people of God, what does that say about your relationship to Christ. I know there's a lot of Christians who think, I'm good with God, I'm just not good with Him. I'm good with God, I'm just not good with her. That's an impossibility. The only way out of that is to, to go to Romans, Romans 12 where it says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. If you can say, it is not possible because as far as it depends on me, I've done everything I could and she will not reconcile. I just don't know many cases where that's true. Most of the time it's, I'm good with God, I just don't like that person. As long as I don't have to be around that person, I'm okay. That's a problem. That, that shows a, a, a breach in your walk with Christ. And you're not, you're not living out your salvation the way you should if you're just willing to be content with a broken relationship with a brother or sister. Again, it's possible that you've done everything you can and they will not come to you. But until you can say that to God, you shouldn't be content. All right, number four, Jesus says that unity is our destiny. He says in verse 23, he's, he prays that we would be one in perfect unity. 
that there would be perfect unity between us. That hasn't happened yet in any church that I know of, but it's, it ought to be our goal. It ought to be a goal we're aiming for. And then in verse 24, he says, I pray that they may be with me where I am. We read that and we think it means heaven. And I think in part it does. I think it means that heaven starts right now. We're supposed to be in Christ right now. And so when we get to heaven, it won't be such a big transition because we've already been living that way. The only transition will be, hey, it's kind of fun not having illnesses and getting hurt, you know, watching my friends pass away. But otherwise, this life is just a continuation of the life that I was progressively more and more living on earth. Uh, but yeah, this idea that our ultimate destiny is going to be unity. I hope you understand. And there's a lot of good jokes about this. I will not try to tell one right now. But there's not going to be a, a Baptist section of heaven, right? There, there's just not. Um, I, I'm sorry if this offends anybody, but I know a lot of Church of Christ folks who are going to be really surprised. Really surprised. What are all these people doing here? Um, I had a friend, and, and he used to say, he loved to say this. He said it almost every time I saw him. You better get used to me. We're going to be together a long time. <laughs> I used to laugh. He's right. He's right. Now is the time to make things right with people. Now's the time to build that unity because we're supposed to be living that way forever. We will be living that way forever. I just have it in my head. For some Christians, there's going to be an adjustment because they're just not used to living that way. And then finally, we need unity to survive. I talked about this some last week. I think Christians are starting to understand this now. Now that we're becoming more of a minority in our own country, I think we're starting to understand that the little differences that we used to fuss and fight about and still do in some cases don't, just don't matter all that much anymore. Sure, there are differences that do matter. There are core doctrines that we cannot compromise on. But what Jesus says in verse 25 is the world doesn't know them. The world doesn't know God. It doesn't know Him, and therefore the world sees the gospel the way a body sees a foreign invader. It wants to attack just instinctively. This is a dangerous world we live in. And yet, in verse 26, He says, His last, his last words are, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In a dangerous world, you need an army. But the only army that's going to win this fight is an army of love. If we fight on the world's terms, if we fight fire with fire, we've already lost. I hope you realize that. You can see that through Christian history. Whenever the church has ad adopted the world's methods to gain power, to gain supremacy, it's never worked. Maybe in a short term it's worked. Yeah, we've gotten some people to be king. We've won some wars of religion. Did that win people to Christ? It's got to be a, a, an army built on love. It's got to be built on loving each other as the beginning of loving the world. That is what Jesus prayed for for us. I thank God that I, I get to be part of a church where when I walk through the sanctuary, when I walk through the atrium on Sunday mornings, 
I see people laughing, I see people talking. Uh, the rare occasions when I get to be at a, a life group event, that's an enjoyable time. I just see people enjoying one another. I love that, I want that to continue. I want that to increase. I wanna see us, as we continue to grow, that this would be a place where people uh, come in and realize I'm home. By the way, one more thing, I didn't plan to say this. You read any study of what people are looking for in a church, you find out that you know, somebody finds a church home and they say, okay, I visited the church, I found the church for me, I am, I am gonna stay there. 10 years later, you come back, they're still there. What was the thing that they found? It wasn't the music and it wasn't the preaching. It was people treated me like I belonged. That's the number one thing. People came over and talked to me. Somebody invited me to lunch. People made me feel like I mattered. That's what people are looking for. So as much as I love it when people come and say, hey, you're doing a great job. That was a good sermon. What makes me even happier is when someone comes up to me and says, you know, since I've been here, people have treated me so well. People have treated me like I'm a child of God. That's what makes me happy. That's what people need. That's what the Lord is calling us all to. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for creating the church. We know that you created it not to give us something else to do, another obligation or responsibility. You created it because we need it in order to live out the, the life of God fully, the life you have for us. Oh Lord, I pray and I thank you for this church, for the unity I see here, the love that I see in this place. I pray, oh Lord, that where we don't have everything you've called us to have, I pray that we would strive for it. Father, I pray also that we would not just love each other, but would love the people you bring us in the future. That we would be a place where people who come in are treated like they belong. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.